this is Miriam Knight from New Consciousness Review. We're speaking today with Jim White. Jim is the author of The World is a Safe Place. He originally came from a small town in Iowa, and today he's a forward-thinking global citizen and businessman who has lived and worked in 22 countries during his career in the entertainment industry. After working as a senior executive for high-profile companies like Blockbuster Video, Universal Music Group, and currently as a vice president at Paramount Studios, Jim has developed a keen eye for spotting everyday miracles and has trained himself to see the world in a very unique way. And I think it's through his books that he hopes to share this way with millions of others. So Jim, tell me about the title. Why did you call it The World is a Safe Place? Uh, it has pretty far-reaching implications. Well, the story is an interesting one, and, and thanks for the background on myself. It's really great to be on, on the show here and speak with you. As you mentioned, I grew up in a very small town uh, in the Midwest, and I feel like I was sort of switched on early on as a child. I just sort of was full of wonderment and joy, and nobody could tell me no, and I asked questions all the time. And a little rambunctious boy, well-behaved but rambunctious, and I grew up in a very beautiful aquatic environment with lakes and trees and turtles and ducks, and I was very, very fortunate to have that. And probably when I was about four or five years old, I had to lay down with my mother and take a nap, which was sort of an excruciating thing to have to do to make me settle down a little bit. And she worked very hard, and my father worked very hard, so nap time I think was more for her than it actually was for me. And there was this moment in time when we were napping and I couldn't sleep, and I had this warm feeling, and I sort of do a recount of this in the book, sort of a warm energy feeling, and I wasn't frightened by it, but I wasn't sure what it was. It was like nothing I ever experienced, and saw a little glowing light cloud. It's, it's very hard to describe in words, but it was more of a feeling, and this feeling engulfed the room, and it was, it was just empowering, and it just felt alive and joyful and magical, and all of this sort of went into me, and I shaked and shouted and tried to wake my mother up, and then it vanished. And then I went on to being a little boy again. And what it really felt like at the time was there was a communication that happened. And I went on and went to school and did things and played sports and didn't like it. And some of my teachers were good and some of my teachers were bad. Basically, I just went through life. And then what happened is I started to get into my adult age and travel and see all these different things that were happening in the world. Um, that message actually came into words that I could actually understand. And it came in a sentence to me, the world is a safe place. And I was shocked by that because everything around me, everything I saw, the news, my friends, people were telling me, no, it wasn't. And what it did was it started really a dialogue of wondering why it's not. We take so many things for granted. I woke up this morning, probably as you did, Miriam, and turned on the news and turned it back off and got in the shower and the water was running. I didn't even wonder why the water was running. It was just running. And I drove to work this morning the same way I kind of drive to work all the time. And those things are things we just take for granted. And I think what's happened now, there's a sense of complacency, and I'm very positive because I believe it's changing, uh, that the world's not a safe place. And Again, the question just digs inside of myself, and I want anybody who's listening to this and you and everybody that we know to wonder why it's not. 
And sort of the dichotomy of it is we're doing so many amazing things in this planet. We're doing so many things in the last 100 years, in the last 90 years, the last 80 years, the last year. The technology is doubling uh, basically every 18 months now. Uh, we're exploring the universe. We have Mars rovers still running around on the planet. And we have all these things in front of us that show we have the capacity to solve all the world's problems, and yet we're not. And so usually what happens, it's just a wonderful line, and I ask you, please, all your listeners and you, to use it all the time and to state it almost like a mantra, the world's a safe place. And what you normally get in most cases from people, no, it's not. And the person who you're starting the, to the intercourse with of the conversation will usually give you a million examples of why it's not. Again, it could be a natural disaster in Haiti. Uh, it could be what's happening in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they'll just give you a laundry list of issues. And then the next question to ask is, how could it be a safe place? And what we're doing in this dialogue is we're breaking away the thought process and the complacency. Here in my human resources job, I've had a human resources career uh, for, gosh, I won't tell you now, but almost 20 years. And what my job is, my work job is, is to solve problems. And they're complicated problems with people, especially in the entertainment industry, I'm sure you can imagine. Do you watch Entourage at all, HBO, any of those shows? Do you watch any of the Hollywood shows? Uh, sure. So you see sort of this conundrum of complexity, and it's not just my industry. Everybody has it in their workplace, but I'm a problem solver, and I believe that's what we all are. I believe the human species is an amazing, amazing being in solving problems. We just haven't applied them all in the same direction. So I want you to visualize with me, if you can, and your listeners, what would happen if all, and I'll roll this number out, 7 billion people all on the planet whatever language, wherever they were in the world, all at one moment of the time thought the world is a safe place. And the question is, would it be? Could we think ourselves into safety? And not necessarily my form of safety, whatever safety means, whether it's security or not having break-ins or having money or having a beautiful home, whatever those things are for you, could we change the world by thinking it into existence? And depending how you believe create, creation happened, I don't know, there's multiple things from the Bible, the different ways, there's some concepts that the world was thought into existence. So if we use the power of our consciousness, could we think it into a better place? I think we can. You know, that's really rather ironic coming from somebody in the entertainment industry. You could really point a finger at the media both the, the, the uh, news media and the entertainment media as really feeding off the idea of fear. I totally, totally agree with you. It's interesting this morning, again, I, I, I use the analogy of myself coming in this morning, and right before I came in, Lindsay Lohan, the actress, is being brought back into court. And there was so much attention here in Hollywood right now about that. There were camera crews everywhere, and they were just getting a glimpse of her in her black dress going into uh, the courtroom. And I was looking, and I looked at the television set, and I thought, I hope that young girl does well. I hope that she's able to survive this. I hope that she becomes a role model for anybody who has the affliction that she has. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm unusual in that because maybe other people were thinking that she deserves to go to jail or, I don't know, a multitude of thoughts that they have. I did this yesterday as well when President Obama here in the U.S. was speaking to the United Nations, and he was addressing the Palestine uh, and the Israel Council, Israeli Council about peace. And I just thought with my whole heart, 
I hope you can do this. I know you can do this. I know we can all do this together is to find peace. And the power of our consciousness is amazing. I'm a little bit of a geek. I'll share with you. I study quantum physics and astrobiology, and I just love everything about science. I always have since I was a little boy. And there's the belief in quantum theory that the observer affects the observed. We are the ones who are making things change. And it's pretty simple, too. It doesn't have to be mathematical or complex. When you wake up in the morning, is it a good day or a bad day? And that's a decision that we all have to make microsecond by microsecond. But if we allow ourselves, and it takes a little work, I'll have to admit that a little bit. I'm not always the happy guy I sound right now. If we train our mind to find the good in everything we see, no matter how dark or no matter how ugly it is, we can find the good in everything we see. Absolutely. It, you know, it's interesting that there are a lot of very profound observations like these in your book. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, did you have a guru? How did you build up this mosaic picture of the way the world works? Well, I was very fortunate again in my ability to be able to see so many places. I started very early in my career in a video store in the Midwest, of all things. I didn't want to smell like a pizza or smell like a burger, and I had to, had to work to pay for college. And this thing called the video store opened up across the street. And I was like, what is that? Nobody even knew what it was. Uh, and uh, later on, that grew into something called Blockbuster Video, and I helped that company grow to about 9,000 stores in 27 countries. And I was very lucky to travel to a lot of the locations all over the world and open up video stores, Warsaw, Vienna, Copenhagen. And while I was there, I met so many people, amazing people. And my natural curiosity, I call it the why factor, allowed me to be personable with people. And sometimes I couldn't speak the language. And I would go to their homes and taste their food. And I would go bowling and we would go to church. And I noticed in the world how different it was, how amazingly different it was. But at the same time, it was the same. People have hopes and people have dreams, and the commonality of the human species is, is a lot more connected than I had ever realized before. And in that, I saw this spark of hope in everybody that everybody ultimately, I think, really wants things to be good. I think everybody wants things to be peaceful. Uh, and even the things that seem so opposite of what we're doing, um, there's good in that. And people raise children, and there's a lot more commonality on the planet that, that I think people really realize unless you stop and think about it. And so that gave me this Franken philosophy, I call it, like a Frankenstein monster. It allowed me to go out and start to read everything. So there wasn't one specific guru, but I've had some great, I, I guess, uh, role models. I would say Wayne Dyer I love and Deepak uh, Chopra and Eckhart Tolle and Oprah. I mean, I could go, the list goes on. What I decided to do is read the world like a book. The conversation that we're having right now is maybe a sentence in both of our lives. Or maybe we become best friends and, I don't know, we get married and that becomes a chapter of our lives. I don't know what it is. But when you look at every experience that happens to you, from picking up the phone to driving into work today, and you can learn something from it, it becomes an amazing place. The world becomes this giant encyclopedia that you walk through. Sometimes I almost have to shut off the, shut off the lights and hide from it just a little bit because there's so much information here if we just open our eyes and look for it. Question. It was, it was interesting. I was at a film last night. I uh, mentioned Waiting for Superman, and it's about the def default of our education system here in America. And we sort of have this concept that you have to go somewhere to learn. 
okay, Miriam, come on, we have to go to the library now. And when we're in the library, that's when we're going to learn. Or we have to go to the lecture hall, and that's when the teacher's going to give us the information. Well, we're learning right now. I'm learning from you. You sound like a wonderful person, and we're having a great dialogue. And when I step away from this conversation, I'll be touched by the, the dialogue that we're having. I've learned something today already. Uh, and if everybody walked through the planet thinking that, wow, the global consciousness would grow faster than anybody could ever imagine. And the secret is, no pun intended there, I think it's happening. I think it's happening anyway. Um, as more and more people become more and more aware, the only thing that seems to be really happening, and if I told you I knew all the answers, you better run a mile. The only thing that I think is really happening is we're all evolving. And I don't think we have a choice. Uh, in terms of that growth and experience that's happening. I've just decided to jump on the bandwagon of my evolution and try to accelerate it. Well, do you think that your um, years abroad and seeing all these diverse cultures, seeing the common threads among them, gave you a perspective that most Americans don't have because we're such a large country and so uh, we see ourselves more as America versus the rest of the world whereas the countries in Europe, for example, see themselves as part of something greater. That's a really, really good point. It was very interesting because, again, bring, being raised in a, in a small town, and my parents had never left the country before, and I can remember in school learning these places uh, where mountain ranges were, where Paris, France was, and all those things, but I didn't have the context to understand what they were, and there was no initiative really for me to leave. You know, we have everything we need here in America. We have mountains, and we have oceans, and we have snow, and we have deserts, and so we're so blessed with such natural resources, but to some degree, it's also very confining because there's no reason to really leave. And uh, when I really first left the very first time, I mean, I wish you would have seen me. I was the biggest American dork on the planet because um, I didn't have any kind of context to be able to drive on the other side of ro the road in England. I had no idea how to use a phone in the other countries because they looked the same, but they didn't work the same. And I got really angry initially. I was really upset because there were all these wonderful differences and things that I just nobody ever told me. So if nobody ever told me, whose fault is it? So was it my parents' fault because they didn't have the experience and they couldn't pass it on? Was it my American education system because it tried to show me how to do things but it had no context? I finally realized there was no fault at all, but it was my own obligation to myself to be able to learn these things. And that's when I set out on the quest to start to ask the question about everything that happens. I think it's everyone's individual responsibility to go out and learn and see the differences in everything and the things that are the same and the way we can help things, etc. That's called empowerment to me. Well, you use the term all these wonderful differences, whereas uh, what we're seeing on the American, particularly the American political scene at the moment, is that differences are seen as threatening, as uh, engendering fear. So um, are you hoping that your book will, will sh try and, sh not try, will succeed in shifting the perception from differences as a source of fear to differences as a source of enrichment. It's already happened. 
So it, it's already succeeded because just the fact that I'm able to communicate with you, and let's pretend the whole world is just you and me. I think you're familiar with Adam and Eve, right? Uh-huh. Let's pretend something's happening and it's just you and I, and we're having this dialogue now. It's already succeeded because two people are having the conversation. Fortunately, um, the World's a Safe Place project that I've been working on has been going on for some time now. So it succeeded again and again and again, countless times that I can't even imagine. I'll tell you a little story. I originally started this book project, physically actually building the book. I self-published it myself because I always wanted to see what that was like to write a book. Had storyboards up in my loft. I live in downtown Los Angeles where I'm actively involved in preventing homelessness. I'd lock myself in and write these stories. But before the book was actually published, I made a series of little cards and they say the world is a safe place on them. And then I call them inspiration cards. They have little messages from the book, the little quotes that are there. And I started when I was traveling leaving them in tip jars. I'd stick them in the air, airline seat, not being a litterer. I don't want you to think I'm a global litterer. <laughs> but I put these little cards all over just as an experiment, by telephone booths and things like that. And it was remarkable. They had a, a, my website on there, theworldisasafeplace.com. I usually say that twice because people stumble through it because they don't believe the world is a safe place. The world is a safe place.com. And the most amazing thing happened. People would start sending me emails. What is this? Who are you? I mean, random people from all over that I didn't even know. And I ran into a friend. This is one of those wonderful stories uh, in Orlando, Florida, who I hadn't seen for literally 15 years. And we connected and got together. And I was talking about the project, because I always do, the world is a place, and starting the dialogue. And I pulled out one of the cards, and I passed it to my friend Gary. And he looked horrified. I mean, he was, like, in shock. And I, I said, what, you, you don't like the color? <laughs> you don't like the words? He said, I have one of those. And I said, where did you get it? Because I've only probably passed out at that time maybe a couple hundred. And he was like, I got it from a friend of mine who's in New York. I've got to call her right now. I know New York. I'm like, Gary, Gary, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And what that did was that gave me a message to myself knowing I was on the right track. Mm-hmm. It was on the right track because I like to believe we're like ants, A-N-T, uh, the insect. I believe that we touch fillers, move on, and bring it back to the colony. And the more we spread our touching of fillers, and it's in, in business terms, viral marketing, the more we start to spread out a message, it becomes real, and it becomes part of the mainstream. It becomes part of our normal day. And if you look at Twitter as a technology of communicating, if you look at Facebook, and you're familiar with all these technologies, look what's happened to the global landscape of communication. Anybody, anywhere, pretty much in the world, if they have access to the technology, can get their message out there. And if the message is one that's ready to be adopted and picked up by society, it starts to move across. And I think we're ready for the world to be a safe place. I know I am. You conceived of this work as a trilogy, with The World is a Safe Place being the first book in the trilogy. Where are you taking us in the second one? Well, the second book is called The Middle of Forever. And it's an interesting play on words. If you read the first book, it ends with, welcome to the middle of forever. And the middle of forever, if you think about it, the middle of forever is right now. It's the present moment. There's no line in the sand that says you're halfway in forever or you're three quarters past forever. You're right here in the middle of forever right now. It's the present moment. And the present moment is an amazing place to be. I'm not sure if you've read The Power of Now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 
by Eckhart Tolle. There's no problems in the present moment. We only get into trouble when we start to move into the future, we start to move into the past. But when we stay present, and this goes into the philosophy, and you can bring it all across from Buddhism to Hinduism, anywhere, when we stay in enlightenment or self-actualization or empowerment, there's so many words to name whatever it is, that's when the miracles start to happen. So the second book, The Middle of Forever, where the first book left off, really my story, how what I'm recounting to you right now, how it got me to this place, I can't do it alone uh, in terms of how the world would be. So the second book, The Middle of Forever, is really about everybody else's story. It's a series of vignettes uh, from people all over the world, what they think is happening in the world. We have people from Brazil and New Zealand and France and America who've been wonderful enough to be able to submit either a poem a story, a thought. The submissions really were completely wide open. There were no parameters on what people could submit. So that's sort of the second phase in terms of getting it out there with everybody. The third book, uh, which is in concept right now, I don't physically have anything yet, is called It's Time to Make a Wish. And that is the wish of the world. What would the world look like if everybody had perfection in their lives? Utopia, what would that look like? Would there be no more wars? Would there be no disease? Would everybody have money? I know what that would look like for me, but Miriam, I don't know what that would look like for you or your friends and your family and everybody else. So the concept is it all begins with you. It all begins with me. And then we all join together. And then we create whatever we want it to look like at the end. And then we come backwards to us again. And I have another little side project, and in the middle of that, I'm enhancing the worldisasafeplace.com to be similar to a Facebook or a MySpace, but it's going to be a social consciousness website where perhaps I'm in the Gulf right now cleaning oil off of a pelican, and that's something that rings true to you. Uh, maybe you love animals. We can meet and communicate about that. Similar to a Facebook, but I won't be telling you I'm blow-drying my hair right now and going out to the bar later and you're headed out to the bowling alley to meet some friends. Those are day-to-day -day activities that happen. I'd like to enhance that and have people really talk about the good things that they're doing and find a way to connect other people all over the globe who are doing good things as well. That's an amazing concept, Jim. Tell me, you're, you're also involved in a couple of foundations. Tell us about those. Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, when I moved here to Los Angeles, where I'm speaking to you from right now, I moved from New York City, and I really honestly never wanted to live in Hollywood. I was sort of horrified by the stories of the superficial superficiality and the expense and the traffic, and I found Los Angeles to be just a remarkable place. Uh, I had been living in a loft in New York, and so I looked for the lofts in L.A., and they thought I was smoking something. And I found this wonderful thing called downtown Los Angeles. Have you ever been to the center of the city here, Miriam, downtown Los Angeles? No, I haven't. Uh, well, it was left destitute for many, many years when the automobile came in. And what it left behind were these wonderful historic buildings. The building that I live in is a 1904 bank building. It was a skyscraper back at that time. It was the tallest building west of the Mississippi uh, for 50 years, and I'm so fortunate I have the whole top floor uh, loft space and I have a view. And I was so excited to find a loft space in downtown Los Angeles. Remember being completely ignorant to the fact that nobody lived there, and I was uh, what they call a pioneer in the area. When I moved there, there were roughly 1,200 people living in the area. There are 50,000 people living down there now. There's restaurants and shops, and it's just turning into an amazing thing, which has happened to many, many of the, the U.S. cities coming back to their city centers. 
But what also was happening when I walked outside, there were residents there, roughly about 4,000 of them, who were homeless on the street, mm-hmm. sleeping in tents, sleeping in boxes, eating out of the trash. And I have to tell you, I have seen a lot of things in the world that aren't very pleasing. I was shocked. I didn't understand it. I was unzipping tents and going, excuse me, and they were screaming at me, and I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're homeless. And and I just literally couldn't even comprehend the disaster that's in this city. I mean, I just, there's roughly estimated 90 to 120,000 homeless in L.A. County, Uh, most of them concentrated in downtown Los Angeles. Because no one was living there, it was very easy to put the social services there and the missions and things. Mm -hmm. So I went on a big quest to figure out what the heck was going on and how these people got here, why no one was helping them, and what the problem was. And so it kicked into my Iowa activist, and I got very, very involved with an organization called Beyond Shelter. It's beyondshelter.org. It specifically helps homeless women with children on the street. When I saw little children on the street, I was like, oh, my God, look, there's kids down here. But it was like at midnight. And I'm thinking, what are these kids doing out at midnight? And then I realized they were homeless children. And it's just something I can't tolerate. You know, I, I'm unable to consciously live my life knowing that that problem's there and I'm not doing anything about it. So that's one organization. There's another one, <laughs> which is kind of, I can't stop. Um, there's another one called Chrysalis. And uh, their their website is changelives.org, and they're more in line with what I do as a profession. They help uh, underprivileged and homeless people find work because it's very, very difficult, even today's society here where I work now, uh, to get interviewed, to get a background check, and get hired. You know, we require most people to have education, college education, to get the good jobs. And these are people who are sleeping on the street who don't even have a phone or an email. So the organization's amazing in helping educate, uh, helping train, helping practice for interviews, and in providing clothing for people to go to interviews with. And then I have one more, and then I promise I'll stop. Um, It's a little bigger. Uh, Those are my local organizations that I support here in Los Angeles. Again, because I'm a community activist in the city I live in, I want to be a part of helping. I've aligned the world to take place with a larger global scope organization, and it's called Dignitas International. I'll say it again. It's Dignitas International or uh, Dignitas.org. DignitasInternational.org. And what they do is Dignitas uh, is a Latin word for dignity. And they're involved with the United Nations and Doctors Without Borders. And they're working on the HIV AIDS crisis in Malawi. And I'm not sure if you're familiar, probably familiar with Malawi in Africa. It has one of the largest population ratio people to HIV. Uh, there are roughly 60 million people who live in the country, and about 15 to 16 million of those people have HIV because they're not educated. And this is male, female, children. This is everybody. It's not just sexual orientation. Uh, they're not aware of how the disease spreads. And so Dignitas is setting up stations, or they've already set up stations in different parts of the country for education, uh, birth control. And it's a model formula, not only just for HIV and AIDS, but for healthcare in all developing countries. So proceeds from the World to Safe Place projects, the three books, uh, go to help support that organization. Well, I am really blown away by your activities and just by your vision for the world, Jim. So it's been a real privilege to 
interview you today. Thank you so much. Well, Miriam, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me speak to you and all your listeners out there. And I'd like to leave everybody with a wonderful thought, if you don't mind. Uh, it's a simple one, and it's the world is a safe place. The world is a safe place, indeed. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Miriam. We've been speaking with Jim White, and the website for his book is theworldisasafeplace.com. I'm Miriam Knight from New Consciousness Review, and you can hear all of our podcasts on iTunes and at our website, ncreview.com. I hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye. <laughs>